I've always enjoyed listening to scary stories. Not like ghost stories or Dracula stuff, but stories about real things that actually went down. Scary stories about hairy situations. From HairyStories.com and STGB, I'm Matt G, and this is Harry. Dateline, Southeast Asia. Authorities reported the loss of one aircraft from ground fire. The pilot was rescued by helicopter. In that one line, there's a story. This is a story about that story. About that special breed of men who go into combat that others may live. From the last episode, you'll remember that Colonel Graves was on his way home from a mission in Magia Pass when he heard multiple beepers indicating pilots ejected in the area. Upon return to base, he learned that an F-4 crew, call sign Stormy 2, was shot down over the area of Japan by any aircraft fire. The pilot was either killed on ejection or executed by the enemy, and the backseater ejected at high speed and was badly injured but alive on the ground. A search and rescue team was scrambled from MKP to try to pick up the injured backseater, but within minutes of arriving over Japan, one of the air rescue planes, call sign Sandy 2, was shot down. The pilot of the Sandy managed to extract and get a good shoot, but he was surrounded by enemy troops. He either landed in a tree or was able to get up a tree after hitting the ground. With light fading, the search and rescue was called off and the two surviving pilots on the ground spent what must have been a cold and terrifying night in the jungle of Japan. Now a SAR team is being formed at NKP for another first light effort, and Colonel Graves has been tasked to lead a flight of four on a first light diversion to support the SAR. He just woke up at 3.30 a.m. to what's going to be a very busy day over Laos on January 18th, 1969. Sure enough, at uh, 3.30 in the morning, my alarm went off, and uh, and I got out for one of the damnedest days I ever saw in my whole life. And uh, so, after the events that happened, um, I had a quick breakfast uh, at the club and got down to the Tactical Operations Center as soon as I could. I had to assemble my flight. I may recall we've been tasked to lead a diversion uh, on this search and rescue. So uh, we were taking four F-4s and I had eight crews. And uh, the target was gun emplacements kind of inside uh, caves and these giant karsts up in this place and uh, where they could roll them out and shoot. And uh, it was kind of down in a valley and they, like the only way in there to roll in and try to bomb them was uh, in their cone of fire. You know, so you had to show up there where they could see you, you know, type thing. And we were looking at this very carefully, and I just happened to notice that, as a coincidence, they had fragged us with a different ordnance load. I had Mark 117 750-pound bombs with these old World War II bombs, that just like they dropped out of B-17s, you know, the fatter ones. And, uh, but these had been 
loaded again. Remember, the bomb is just a steel shell, and the explosive is on the inside. So they had loaded this, these with a, a very high explosive called uh, Minol. So we, in, in fact, turned it into a thousand-pound bomb. So it gave me an idea about, huh, maybe we could sneak up and go in behind them and try to blow these cars down on top of them. And that was kind of uh, what was going through my mind as we were um, sitting there in the briefing, finalizing what we're going to do. Simultaneously, um, over at NKP, the SAR forces were up at Odark 30 and planning their missions. And uh, they had to uh, have two different uh, search and rescue teams uh, were forming up uh, for an Odark 30 takeoff. Um, and each team would have two Sandys and two Jollies to go out and rescue either one uh, Stormy 2 and the other was Sandy 2. Um, and this is, all, and we were, our diversion of this was all going to take place kind of simultaneously. All right. Okay, so, uh, you know, we took off, made our takeoff time of uh, about uh, 6.30 a.m. And we're proceeding out to target. We're probably going to hit our target about 7.30 and uh, to coincide with the SARS and this sort of thing. So first thing I did, of course, was check in with the Airborne Command Post on Hillsborough. And Hillsborough gave me the same stuff they always do, you know, like uh, a Roger BFIs, there's intensive anti-aircraft fire, there's 37, 57, 85, 110 millimeters, and SA-2s, uh, extreme danger, use extreme caution. And my thought was, I would like to say, Oh, now you told us that, we're going to cancel. I'll go back to the park. And uh, <laughs> I always wanted to do that, of course. It, you know, I couldn't. So I said, Roger Hills, where I was, you know, thanks a lot. Because we had to go anyway. So here we're approaching our target, and um, we're doing a high-speed, low-level ingress uh, at 500 feet. We're going to use what's called a pop-up attack, where um, we put everybody in right echelon, we're at 500 feet, 500 knots, and at the right moment, I'm going to pull straight up from the deck to about 14,000, come over the top and what's called a Shondell-type maneuver, and pick up the target. The only trick about this thing, if you're not in the right place and come over the top and you're driving the wrong place, you know, you got to be accurate in your navigation getting there. But we came in from the north, from behind them, and uh, as I came over the top and came down the chute and I put my pepper right on the target, I said, yeah. And I actually, I hit it just like I wanted. So about, I think four of my bombs went down the side of the course, the other two went behind it or something. And then I, you know, was in a 5G pull and jinking hard because I knew we were gonna, they were gonna cut loose on us like we'd never seen before. And uh, anyway, I was jinking hard coming out of there um, as I got off the target, I saw in my mirrors that two and three and four had all placed their bombs very accurately in there. And uh, so we got out of there, but what was really weird, there wasn't a shot fired, just nothing. And it was really creepy. We, it kind of discombobulated us. We were like, we're all set to be jinking and dodging fire and all this stuff. And it was like, I don't know, maybe it was a holiday or something that we didn't know about, but Anyway, we got the hell out of there, and we hit our target. 
And so, and later on, our KB-18 strike cameras showed that we obliterated it. That, uh, you know, we all carried strike cameras on our aircraft that, uh, <clears throat> you know, you couldn't hide where your bombs went later on when you got back from the debriefing. So we're coming back and checked back with Hillsboro. we gotten out of there. So Hillsboro, of course, um, was wearing two hats. They were also acting as crown. They were running the SAR and at the same time running these diversions. And so they were really busy. And, but we were um, really pleased to hear that um, they had the first uh, SAR Gwen had made contact with Fagan and uh, they picked him up uh, uh, at first light on, uh, on the radio and then they decided to go make a, a grab for him. They went in there and the Sandys beat up the place pretty well. They took a lot of fire, but the Jollies moved in and the um, PJ, because of Fagan's condition, remember he had 11 broken bones, you know, they just couldn't get him on the hoist and pull him up. They had to, somebody had to go down and get on the ground and put him in a litter. And then this really brave PJ did that and they got him and got him up while they were under pretty heavy fire and they got out of there. Hillsborough or Crown was relaying this to us as we were flying back to to uh, Uban. Which really gave us a form fuzzy, like, oh man, they got uh, they got one of them out of there. And so at that time we felt a little uh, euphoria. One, we hadn't had our asses shot off. And two, that uh, at least they rescued uh, one of the guys. Quick break from the podcast. This is Matt. In episode two, I interviewed Ed Cobley about flying night combat over Laos. Apart from being a pilot, Ed's one hell of a writer. He wrote the best-selling book, War for the Hell of It. It really helped me get a better understanding of what was going on in the fighter business in Vietnam. Well, he's written a fantastic new book called Fly with the Falcon. The subject might surprise you, but Ed's a master, and it's a great read. It's about sexual harassment in the U.S. military and peregrine falcons. It's set in Saudi Arabia and California's central coast wine country. And it's a tightly written, fast-paced narrative about how three troubled aviators, two human and one avian, find their tangled lives intertwined. As always with Ed's books, it features exciting aerial action, this time from both female birds and fighter pilots. It's about three protagonists searching for a solution that will give them back their freedom, freedom to fly once again. It's a great read, and you can find it on Amazon.com, Amazon.fr, Amazon.co.uk, and Ed will be happy to give you your money back if you don't love the book. Again, that's Fly with the Falcon. I highly recommend the book. And now... Back to Harry. When Crown and the Sandys and the Jolly Green Giants came together to make a successful rescue, it was a thing of beauty. I can only imagine how sweet that sound of helicopter blades beating the wind must have been to Fagan, and how welcome the smile of that pararescue jumper or PJ must have been. I found some actual audio of a very similar rescue. It's not totally clear, so I'll add some context as we listen. At the beginning, you can hear the Sandys and Jollies communicating on approach as they try to find the downed pilot. 
Charlie requiring the uh, PJ. Make sure the uh, Charlie is still aware of this. Uh, Roger, we've got the uh, Charlie's at the holding point. Okay, Charlie, straight ahead. 33 vectoring you. Straight ahead on the top of the ridge line. Go ahead. Oh, I got the smoke. Oh, I got him. Below the train. Okay, we got the smoke. Right, babe. Go get him. Okay, just stand by, babe. We're coming in to get you. Stand by. Okay, the lab appears to be injured. I'm going to put a PJ on. Thank you, Hillman. They just located the pilot and guided the Jolly Green over him. The survivor is injured, so they need to lower a PJ down the wire or penetrator into the jungle while the Jolly hovers above. After the PJ is already going down, you hear a faint voice call out, ground fire. So they're hovering above an injured man with a PJ hanging in the air on the penetrator when they start to take ground fire. If you pay attention, you can now hear the Jolly pilot call in the Sandys to make a run at the ground fire. Okay, uh, Charlie, Charlie Green, 6-0, taking ground fire to the 6th position. Sandy, come in, get him, come in, get him. Roger, taking ground fire to the 7th position for the rich line. Come in, get him, Sandy. You can hear the gunners in the Jolly Green letting loose as the Sandys dive in to suppress the fire. At this point, the helicopter is literally a sitting duck. The PJ makes it down and grabs a survivor while all this is happening. The lull in ground fire due to the counterattack gives them a precious window to reel in the PJ and the survivor. Hold your hover, you're close to the tree. Hold your hover, he's right about 10 foot below the aircraft. 10 foot below the aircraft. Hold your hover, babe. Hold your hover. Hold your hover. Hold your hover. Hold your hover. Survivor's coming in indoor. Survivor, send it secure. Let's get the hell out of here. Okay, talk to me. We're coming out. Come on, coming out. Coming out. Okay. When I started this podcast, I thought it would just be a few armchair sessions with a retired Air Force fighter pilot talking about his experiences in the Vietnam War. The vague story he told me about this unbelievable search and rescue mission sounded so crazy that I have to admit, I thought he might be mixing up multiple stories or talking about a tale that had been exaggerated over time. I didn't even have a single name or a date to go on. With almost 10,000 aircraft shot down in Southeast Asia during this war, It seemed like a long shot to find this incident. Finally, I got a break when a retired Navy admiral suggested searching a database of downed aircraft. I didn't expect this project to turn into an investigation, but there I was, trolling through everything possible to track it down. After about a hundred emails with Colonel Graves, I sent him a narrowed-down query with a list of 41 air losses. It was an amazing feeling when I got his reply the following morning. Just a one-liner that said, quote, That's it. January 17 and 18, 1969. Finding the names of the F-4 crew shot down was invigorating, but it also raised the stakes of telling this tale. I lost my license to not let the truth get in the way of a good story. My internet searches on the names were disappointing. It almost felt like I was back to square one. On the side, I was reading books about search and rescue as base research. While I was halfway through the last episode of this podcast, episode 4, 
I was reading the second to last chapter of my fourth book when I struck gold. There it was, in black and white. The names, Captain Victor Smith and First Lieutenant James Fegan, written down by a man who was on the SAR team. I couldn't believe it. After all this, I stumbled across it by chance. Goosebumps came over me as I read the story. The book is called Cheating Death and was written by an amazing man named George Merritt. If he was alive, I had to find him. I had to talk to this guy who was part of the SAR. As I record this, I'm still trying to get through to George Merritt. Like Colonel Graves, he's 85 years old. It's not easy to randomly blindside a guy like this about a podcast, but I'll keep trying until he puts a restraining order on me. I have to talk to the Sandy pilot who flew over Japan that day and wrote this incredible account of the story. Meanwhile, Colonel Graves and his squadron mates were feeling pretty damn good about the day so far. One of their own who got shot down in an F-4 has been plucked out of the jungle alive. They were all acutely aware that they might be the next guy down there hoping to get rescued. Fighter pilots in this war had a special appreciation for search and rescue forces. To this day, they won't let a SAR guy pay for his own drink. And if Colonel Graves is buying, it'll be a double. Unfortunately, the day's events aren't over and the second rescue is going to get a hell of a lot hairier. And now we're about a warm fuzzy. We're, we're back in the tactical operations center. We've debriefed. And uh, one of the guys has been saved. And, uh, of course, uh, the, the big sorry is still going on now because we had um, Sandy 2 had been shot down the evening before. The second SAR team that took off uh, simultaneously with all of us in the morning, had headed out uh, to save uh, the colonel. And uh, so they arrived over uh, Chapon, uh, but the whole place was socked in with weather. And so they were in position about 6 o'clock or 6.30 in the morning. And there was cloud cover down there. Of course, the Jollies and the Sandies have got more fuel in loitering time than the F-4s do, but they don't have, you know, three times that much. So anyway, so they were uh, orbiting over that point. Um, but because of the fog wind burnout, they weren't visually able to pick up his location. And this is what we're picking up from the intelligence guys now. So finally, at, until 9 o'clock before the clouds uh, burned off, before the fog burned off, they saw uh, Morris's shoot in the top of a tree. And uh, so they thought, okay, let's do it. And so they approached the area. They started picking up ground fire from both uh, southeast and southwest of Morris's position. And the SAR was on. And the guys were trolling for ground fire. And uh, so first Sandy dove into the fray uh, on a weapons pass uh, to be followed by the second Sandy. So he went in and really laid down some some heavy fire. And then the second Sandy came in. It was a fairly low angle pass. According to the um, commander of the lead Jolly who was, had, was watching this. And um, tragically, he either took a direct hit or he played too close and he hit the, dragged the wing or something, hit the ground. But he exploded in a great ball of fire and crashed right there in front of everybody. 
and uh, all of his ordnance uh, that he was carrying, which was considerable, started exploding and, um, you know, all this kind of stuff. There were three or four eyeballs on uh, on this guy when this happened, and uh, nobody saw a shoot, nobody saw a beeper. I heard a beeper, I should say. And uh, he uh, exploded near the top of a small mountain, and again, nobody heard a shoot or beeper. So now this kind of messed up everything. Uh, um, now we've got three aircraft been shot down since the start of this mission. And um, Pete Morris is still on the ground as all this chaos uh, erupts around him. And it's been um, four hours. Uh, they had to wait until the fog burned off. And now they've had another Sandy pilot killed and they're too low on fuel to continue. And they had to return to base. They had to call it off again and return back to NKP. At approximately 9.30 a.m. on January 18, 1969, Sandy pilot Robert Cody, a.k.a. Wild Bill Cody, was either shot down or crashed into the jungle of Japan. He died risking his life to save his friend and fellow Sandy pilot. I can't imagine how bad this felt for the SAR team who watched their friend explode into a ball of fire right there in front of them. Or even worse, for Colonel Morris, who watched his friend die trying to save him. How did he feel watching the SAR team fly away while hanging on for his life from a tree in the jungle? He knows the action that just exploded around him has pointed the enemy to his position. It's hard to believe, but this story is just about to get even hairier. On the next episode of Harry. Then think of Fort George Merritt sitting out on the wing, watching helplessly, watching the chopper go in, fearing that six of his closest buddies were going to die in a crash right in front of his eyes, and there's nothing he can do about it. That was a bad moment for everyone. Harry is an original six-episode series by HarryStories.com and STGB. 100% of donations to this podcast will go straight to the Air Warrior Courage Foundation, providing emergency financial assistance to veterans in need. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and write us a positive review. The theme music is Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata by L'Orchestre Cinematique. Cover art by Florence Denise. Source material for this episode included Faces of Rescue by Military Arts Pictures, All for One by Periscope Film, and Ambience Creepy Wind by Inspector. Thank you for listening to Harry. <laughs>